Welcome to the fourth episode of How Public Works, a podcast about local government and how you, as a citizen, can learn about what happens in the public space and how you can participate to influence and enhance your community. In this episode, we're going to explore the world of influencing organizational culture. Our guest is Dr. J.P. Gedeon, who has over 20 years of experience in management consulting, executive coaching, corporate education, and as a keynote speaker in the field of corporate transformation and leadership. He is also a professor at the Schulich School of Business, where he has developed government-focused programs around change management, public sector leadership, and how to be a leader in creating connected, smart cities in government. Whenever we have a conversation together, I always find it thought-provoking and creative. It brings me moments of pause where I really question my patterns, behaviors, and beliefs about creating transformation. So today, we'll create a similar experience for you and see what JP brings into your focus as we all adjust to global change together. So welcome, JP. Omar, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So I want to open up with just asking you a quick question about how did you get into this field and what fires you up about it? Oh, sure. Um, well, I got into it about 20 years ago, and um, I uh, have a PhD in transformational psychology, so I was heading for clinical work. And as I was doing that, a colleague of mine who uh, was a CEO of a company asked me to do a little bit of transformation work. He was frustrated, I think, because he had launched several change management programs in his company, and he was trying to shift culture. And he said to me that although he'd never say this to his staff directly, change management program wasn't really working to the extent that he wanted it to work. And every so often he felt like he was rebooting it under a different name. And, you know, he was a very astute guy. And he said that maybe the reason it wasn't working isn't because his people didn't want to, because there was willful resistance, but maybe because the tool wasn't right. And so he said to me, you know, you're, you're, you're like a, a psychology guy. Um, what if we, instead of worrying about what they do, what if we did some stuff to try to transform how they think? And I found that to be a very interesting project uh, and jumped into it. And quite frankly, from that day on, that's been my career about transforming organizations by working with leaders to change how people think. And I guess the outcome of it is you don't have to worry about what people do if you change what they think. Because if you change what they think, what they do is going to change as a matter of course. Yeah, that sounds very, very uh, driving, JP. And it sounds like it's something that's really brought you a long way in, in the past 20 years, for sure. It, it has. And it's really fired me up over time. Um, I know that was, I think that was the second part of your question. And what really fires me up about it, I mean, I love the whole field of transformation. And I love seeing great things happen. And I love seeing organizations grow and develop. But Beyond that, what really fired me up is as time went on, I came to understand that this whole strategy or this whole approach, this whole capacity to transform an organization or a department really comes to rest on the mindset, the outlook, and the very character of the leader himself or herself. And so we're no longer talking about operational shifts and, you know, just put this policy in place and here's a communication plan. It really started becoming a question of 
who is the leader and how is he or she being reflected in the organization? And there was work done at Harvard um, by Daniel Goleman and all of his colleagues, and they're world-renowned for the, the work that they do. And the upshot of the work was that they found that the culture of a department, everywhere they looked at it, was a direct reflection of the character and the strengths and blind spots of that department leader. And that was a bit of, a, of an eye-opener, because what it's saying is, you can't escape yourself, right? You, you're going to build this company or this department in your image, whether or not you mean to. And so if you wish to change it, the question no longer is so much about what you're going to do to them, but more about who are you going to become that is going to affect them, whoever they happen to be, in the long run. And so one of the great challenges that I, I, I struggle with with a lot of my clients is that some of them, without meaning to, have the separation between home and work, where they have like this compartmentalized way of viewing that this is who I am at home and this is who I am at work, right? And then yes. the persona that I bring to work is not necessarily my full being because at home I'm more whatever you want to say. I'm more intimate. I'm more soft. I'm whatever it is. Uh, you know, I'm more patient, but at work, I'm more, you know, task oriented and et cetera. And one of the challenges is to try to get them to remove that compartmentalization. And I guess why this really fires me up is because once the compartmentalization is removed, what suddenly happens is there's only one person in the leader and that one person moves from context to context. And what I've learned at work and all the struggles that I go through at work come to now teach me better ways to be at home, not just at work, and vice versa. And suddenly my whole being coheres and my capacity to be transformative shoots through the roof. So I guess what gets me up in the morning is not just that you know I'm working with folks on shifting culture and changing organizations, but it really is a generative kind of work where we help people, leaders, become better, more excellent, more full, more developed, more evolved versions of the self that they always wanted to be. And that gets me up every morning. That's amazing, JP. That is amazing. And it's very inspiring because in one way, this is a, really creating a whole person and the need or the lack of the need to wear a mask depending on your situation or your or your purpose in society becomes you, know, you become one right and i think that's that actually fires me up thank you for yeah, sharing and actually, that actually the research will say to you that if you're wearing any kind of a mask uh even if you think it's constructive and protective that mask will be intuitively understood or seen or apprehended by the people reporting to you, and it actually reduces organizational trust to the degree that it could cripple uh, any attempts at organizational transformation and cultural change. Okay, so this is an interesting, this is an interesting path. And just to ask you on that, then really to ask people in your organization to trust you, you really need to trust yourself, don't you, to be able to be vulnerable in your wholeness. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the big aha moments that I always get as I teach this. I teach this 
uh, within corporations, both public and private. Yeah, I get sort of brought in to work with their executives. I do a lot of executive coaching, so I get to know these people um, pretty closely. And that's one of the big things that we always have to deal with, that there is a very human element where people, no matter how high, uh, no matter how high powered they are in an organization, still retain what would be considered normal human insecurities, like everybody, like people are people. And that the capacity to be transformative is not one where you can hide behind these insecurities and not show them, nor do you have to necessarily talk about them out loud to the people reporting to you. That's not what this is about. But it is about a mindset of being able to be authentic in the circumstances in which you are while uh, showing or um, displaying uh, what is appropriate organizationally and increasing trust such that your mindset is one of being able to say to yourself at a certain time in the process, I don't know what the next step is, but I know I will figure something out. So that kind of confidence, that kind of self-efficacy, that kind of capacity for corporate executive optimism and hope, if you will, and resilience even, that doesn't come from working with policies and procedures and communication plans and strategic priorities. That comes from a mindset that is developed within the leader. And the leaders that have it truly run departments and organizations that are unstoppable, especially in this disruptive time. So then when you have this this vision of what this leader looks like, and when you're talking about that transformation, that personal transformation, my curiosity for you, JP, in that um, is really focusing on at what point in time, well, first off, at what point in time does an individual recognize that they're willing to take that step and to, say, work with you to see what that looks like for them, how that that authentic place can emerge and at what point in time when you're having those dialogues do you actually realize that, aha, they've got it or they trust me enough to step forward in that path? What are those, what are those shift points, those pivot points that you see when you have these conversations? Very interesting question, actually. I've got to give it some thought. I can, I can definitely start by saying that when I'm teaching the subject, when I am brought in to do any kind of major transformation project, one of the first things that I will do uh, after doing assessments and audits, et cetera, is do a training exercise where we can sit down and talk about what we're going to do. Um, because that sort of gives everybody a touch point. And the training exercise is usually multi-day and therefore gets pretty intense in terms of what we're talking about. And what I find interesting is every time I start it, almost every time, I would say 98% of the time, I am facing a room of leaders and executives who, although they're not looking awfully defiant, have a sense about them that it's almost like they're saying to me that there's nothing I'm going to say that they don't already know, right? Like, I defy you to teach me something new. All we've ever done is talk about change management. Like, what are you going to say that I've never heard of before, right? Yes. I'm already doing all of this. I don't know why I have to be here, right? Yes. Um, and it's interesting because I haven't started speaking yet. And so 
the change fatigue, I think, is being seen not so much in people not wanting change. I think that's down the road. I think it's even being seen in talking about the training of what we need to do to change. Even there, they're closed down because they're so, you know, frustrated and, um, you know, I don't want to say overcome. That's not the word I'm looking for. Frustrated and uh, have distaste for the topic because we talk about it all the time, right? So it's very interesting that by the time I am about halfway through the first day, and a lot of stuff that I cover in the training certainly has a lot of psychological science to inform where we're coming from. And I really try to peg it into the day-to-day real-life experiences that we all would have, both at work and at home with you know siblings and friends, spouses, children, coworkers, colleagues, etc. By noon on the first day, I find that I now have a room full of people who really are surprised because they never heard about it talked like this before and it has struck them in a way that well let's explore this this might be a new way but what's really interesting is i think the hook that gets them is that they come to see that becoming a true transformational leader is not a compartmentalized activity but it truly is a life choice And I think that fires them up because for, I would say, the vast majority of leaders that I've worked with, that life choice presents them not just the capacity for professional and organizational excellence, but also for a life that has more meaning, more confidence, more self-efficacy, more groundedness, and closer relationships in whatever sphere they choose. And suddenly, becoming a transformative leader is not something that I do for my organization. It's something that I do for my life. And that's the moment I think that they start to shift and want to do the work. And that's an interesting moment because when you talk about that shift away from compartmentalization, really what you're doing is you're actually helping that individual integrate, integrate with themselves, with all the different parts of themselves. And I mean, even culturally, as individuals, especially in North America, we are we grow up in a space where compartmentalization or differentiation or or specialization is actually coveted and and, and trained for. And to actually reverse that tendency must be so enlightening when somebody goes, "Wow, actually, I can be integrated." What What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, you know, Western culture really teaches us from when we're children that. In order to grow up, we have to grow up and out, right? So separate and differentiate. And that's how you show, you know, your uniqueness and who you are. But the research on organizational health uh, and family health and personal health actually comes from multiple sectors, multiple disciplines, pardon me, will show a very different story. But what, what that research says is we don't grow up and out. That's not necessarily the healthiest way. What we need to do is differentiate within, meaning that we become different. We become ourselves while still maintaining and being able to foster closer and deeper relations with those around us so that we could be together, but different, and that that's okay. 
And so that is a form of integrated thinking that I don't need to be out there. I don't need to be different. I don't need to be isolated. My department is not an isolated silo working within a system of other isolated silos. We can be together, but different. And that leads to a whole world of systems thinking where suddenly I am integrated, my department is integrated. And although my uniqueness is not in any way challenged, nor is my talent or my excellence, my capacity to co-mingle is now incredibly heightened. So now I have incredibly broad contextual awareness that I can bring to the table when I'm trying to transform a small department or a large organization so that what I do can be constructive and permanent and I only have to do it once. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, this really resonates for me, JP, as you can imagine, you and I have had conversations over the years about this side of our, of our development and personal growth. And it's still, and I'll just ask it just from this perspective, because, you know, the journey that you're describing, I think it's, it's awe-inspiring and to have leaders get to that place where they can be integrated and feel that they can function within their own talent pool, but also know that they that difference is fine. But then what happens or, you know, are there bottlenecks or hurdles that people bump up against, you know, edges that they bump up against that, you know, whether they come into, you know, trauma or, or other experiences within their, their, uh, their upbringing that, that um, influence or, or impede that ability to become whole. And, and I use the word wholeness from the sense of, and I'll use the word vulnerability, um, trust, willingness to be open and to share in the context of the space that you're, you know, you're working in, whether it's in your home life, your private life, in your social life. And then, and then know that those shifts, as, as significant as they are, you know, are undoing years of, of preconditioning. So, so how do you make it? How do you make it stick? There, there's a famous saying out there, uh, and I remember being in my teens and not really understanding it. I thought it was like, "What a dumb thing to say!" And here I am now, you know, uh, thinking, "Wow, that is a brilliant statement." And the saying is, "Wherever you go, there you are." And, <laughs> yes. Right. And uh, of course, when I was younger, I thought, what a stupid thing to say. Of course, there you are. But now I understand that wherever I go, my whole history is coming with me and I am there, all of me. And that does speak to not living in a compartmentalized world, because the reality is that we do, in fact, bring all of us everywhere we go. And so to answer your question, one of the challenges of being human and being integrated as people is an awareness that unfortunately or fortunately, whichever direction you look at it, the, the, the struggles that we carry on our shoulders are going to be on our shoulders until we deliberately and explicitly address them. And so Life puts us in a situation where our home life very often brings us face to face with our own foibles and our own concerns and our own prejudices and biases. And we know this. We talk about it like that all the time. What we don't often talk about, though, is how even our professional life is 
equally affected by those very biases and concerns, and that very often we can only achieve a level of certainly transformational capacity that is proportional to how many of our own biases and foibles we have worked through and conquered. Mm. And so from a non-compartmentalized approach to life, that means that every experience that we get, regardless of where it is, is a new opportunity to explore these things we carry with us and put down those that we don't think are constructive while retaining those that we think are and becoming better at every step along the way as people, as well as professionals, as well as being family members and siblings and friends. And so, you know, when you think about it that way, if we think about it really sort of, I, I remember saying this to a group uh, just the other day, um, and they were really rife with compartmentalized thinking. This is who I am at work. This is who I am at home, right? Yeah. And I remember saying to them, you know, there was a, a survey done. And one of the questions on the survey was, can you list for me like your intimate relationships in your life? And everybody, most people answered the same thing. You know, my, my, my parents, my kids, my spouse, my close friends, that kind of stuff, right? What was interesting is that almost nobody put coworkers on that list, right? Nobody even thought of putting them down. And it's kind of funny uh, because I said to them, well, let's think about this really sort of base and critically here. If you count, the number of hours in a week that you spend with your coworkers and compare it to the number of hours in a week you spend with your kids. It's actually quite surprising who might be getting more hours, right? And so what this would mean from like a really objective, maybe clinical kind of a stare at the thing is that coworkers are people we live with. And therefore, by very definition, have some degree of intimate relationship as part of it, because we live with these people. And so part of the trouble with compartmentalization, and this really affects transformative leverage and capacity, is that if it is, in a way, an intimate type of relationship, because, you know, I live with you, Ilmar, but I treat it as if it is completely arm's length and non-intimate, it is, you know, and I air quote professional, which now means I hold you at bay, then what I'm doing is I am imposing onto a relationship a nature that it doesn't have. And suddenly we are gonna have a trust quotient between the two of us, and neither of yes. us can probably put our finger on where it came from. Yes, well, and what's interesting too, JP, is that, that what you described makes perfect sense in the you know, in our professional world or in the public spaces that we live. But I would I would hazard a guess that that kind of behavior can spill into even those intimate relationships that those describe as 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 present or that they recognize. And it's in, it's really falling back to that notion of trust and yeah. vulnerability, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, part of human nature is that we don't like to be hurt and we don't like insecurity and uncertainty. So... If we're not careful, modes of action that might make us feel more insulated, more secure, mm -hmm. more in control, whether or not they are healthy, 
might start to bleed into other contexts. And suddenly, mm -hmm. many of our relationships start to suffer. And we do see this, right? When you look societally, there is a known pattern of high-powered executives that end up getting into marital issues and deal with divorces and very often, uh, you know, deal with separations and sometimes live more isolated lives than they would like, where they might have a thousand relationships, but that yeah. many of those are not in fact intimate. So there is um, a quotient that is missing in terms of the meaning that they would like to have with their relationships. And very often that comes because one mode of relating has bled into another. And although it makes you feel more comfortable in the short term, it's not working towards transformative leverage and maturity in the long term. And that'll have its effect. Yes, yes. Well, and what's really, really interesting in all of this is that we're now talking about, you know, as you described, affecting change as an individual. This is really what this is about. Right. We right. as individuals, as leaders, affect the change or create the change in our image. So so I'm going to just shift. And I think we could probably do this for another two hours, frankly, JP, on this <laughs> path. <laughs> yes, but to do that, we need to be on a patio. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I'd like to do is actually just bring in then a little bit of a, a, just a directional shift around you know, the organization and the organization that I'm speaking to or the people that I'm speaking to in this audience are more focused in the government delivery services, you know, municipal government level, local government level uh, organizations. And I know you've worked with many organizations at this level as well as the private sector. And, you know, when you talk about when now that you've sort of framed transformation as the responsibility or actually the natural outcome of a, of a, of an integrated individual, of someone who's whole, what would you say are some of the similarities and differences? And I don't know how we're going to move to this to this next uh, segment of conversation, but I just want to sort of explore, you know, the private sector world and the government sector world, and you know what you see as similarities and differences. How big is that gap? You know, what are some of the hurdles in making some shifts? And then from there, we'll see where that goes. Okay, so I guess the first thing I want to say is that, yeah, the great segue in this is that everything we've talked about to this point kind of sets the scene for a leader's transformative capacity or leverage in his or her organization, right? So although it sounded awfully personally related and um, sort of internally focused, and what I mean by internally, I mean like within the person of the leader, those truly are some of the founding building blocks of being able to build resilience, transformation, hope, optimism, confidence, self-efficacy, trust, value, acceptance, development, you name it, right? Autonomy in the workplace, right? So it comes from the person of the leader. So now to move to the organizational side, as you're saying, as you're asking, Private and public sector, I mean, their, their base mandates are fundamentally different. And I think we all know that, right? Private sector is more focused on profitability, money-making, value for shareholders, marketplace positioning, etc. Whereas public sector really does tend to focus more on um, citizen-centered service and providing uh, services and products and approaches that are more about civic life and uh, you know, um, uh, and about maintaining a degree of high function and uh, order and all that stuff that is required to have 
a properly healthy community, right? Yes, yes. That brings about an interesting similarity and dissimilarity. The similarity comes in what I've noted in so many gigs that I've done in so many different sectors is that people are people. You know, it's we're really good at charting out how people are different, but in fact, people are still people and leadership practice still becomes the basis for effective operations in both sectors. So if I have an overstressed, closed down, defensive leader, it doesn't matter what sector he or she is in, there will be no transformative leverage in that organization or that department. So on that side of it, there is great similarity. The flip side, though, is around the time frame in which liability can be perceived. And what I mean by that is in the public sector, if you make a, sorry, pardon me, in the private sector, if you make a wrong move or you put out a product that's not resonating or you put out an ad campaign that's not hitting right, you're going to get feedback from the marketplace within a number of weeks and you need to shift quick. And so transformative leverage and the capacity to have an organization that is nimble and that is resilient is incredibly important because within a couple of weeks you have to shift or suffer a price Yes, if you haven't suffered it already. Whereas in the public sector, it's not so much products that I'm putting out, it's policy and service more often than products. And how long does it take in the public sector for me to get feedback from the community that whatever policy it is, is not necessarily functional? That's not going to be done in a number of weeks. That gets done in a number of years, often. And so what we find is that the time horizon and the impetus for transformative leverage might appear to be less in the public sector than in the private sector in terms of immediate urgency. And so the private sector, um, pardon me, the public sector has a bit of a reputation for moving slower than the private sector. And very often because of the historical culture in each of the sectors, private sector will try to stare down the road and see what the future is holding and try to be ready for this future. Public sector, because it has a longer time frame and it's working with a public purse and is really concerned with issues of transparency and accountability and responsibility with public funds, will tend to be more risk averse and they will tend to look backwards and say, okay, so what did we learn from our last few you know, cataclysms and traumas and, you know, crises, and what can we avoid this time around, right? Yes, and so yes. it's almost like public sector without meaning to tends to walk down the road backwards, like they're facing where they've been as they progress walking backwards, right? It's, it's hard, hard to move very quickly in that orientation, isn't it? Sure, because you're so worried about tripping that you're looking back down the road and also peering down at your feet to make sure that you're not walking up to a step of some kind, right? <laughs> yes. So you walk slow. I love your analogy, JP. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean this to be disrespectful to, to the, the public sector at all. It's just, I think it is the way it is. 
and even people in public sector admit that change happens slowly and that they are risk averse, um, even though what I think they've come to understand, and never mind the times we're living in now that have really accelerated the need for transformative leverage, even before the current crisis, people in the public sector frequently say, we're really risk averse. We need to find ways to become more innovative and more creative. How do we allow ourselves permission to do off the wall things and not worry so much about the risk? Yes, while trying to conform to regulatory requirements and legislation and right. yeah, public perspective. Yes. Right. Yeah. Now, it's a when challenge. I relate that to the private sector, they are more future oriented because they feel like they have to adapt to what the future marketplace positioning is going to be. That does not mean, however, that they have leaders in place that, have, that are somehow more adept at transformation than the public sector leaders are. Because people are people. And I have found in my journey that public sector leaders are incredibly competent professionals that, quite frankly, would survive very adequately and efficiently and excellently in the private sector should they wish to go there. That's not the issue. The issue becomes in the mindset of the leader. So where the two sectors come together is in the stuff we talked about sort of in the first part of this podcast, which is where are they as people? What is the character? that is being brought to the organization and is that character capable of transformative leverage? And in that question, I find that public and private sectors kind of settle in at about the same place. Okay, so uh, that just begs a question. And I mean, if you look at leadership and we have leadership of the individual leaders, say within both sides of um, the, the um, these organizations, private sector, you also have often a board of directors or some governing body, as you do with council and the public side. So what's then what's sort of that relationship between, say, you might have a, say, a transformative leader in a government organization, but then it's working under the leadership of a council with maybe a different uh, composition or different, different energy, or vice versa. You might have a very transformational leader in the public organization with, again, uh, a board that might be very risk averse or very backwards looking. I mean, how do you, and I don't know where this question might lead us, because at the end of the day, you know, now we're talking about a sort of a microcosm of a of, of personalities. And what does that manifest? And, and, and who actually has the say in that, in that, in that, you know, in that sense of who they are, or who that body is? So this is, a, a very good question. And, and, and the answer comes in making sure that we separate two notions of transformation. The more, um, the more generally accepted, the more conventional idea of transformation is that uh, my job or a transformation is to take an organization from state A to state B, right? And that kind of an approach really now requires the backing of the board of directors or the council, because now we're talking about formally changing from one specific thing to another specific thing. However, what we're talking about when we talk about transformational leadership, what I'm talking about is not so much moving from state A to state B, because that is 
a very insular response. So, you know, when I hit state B, am I done? Are we finished now? Right? right. And the answer is always no, because quite frankly, state C now pops up even before we got to state B, right? It's just kind of the right. way the world is going, like the tornado is on top of my desk. And this change never seems to end. And right. so what I am talking about is not so much a conventional movement from one state to another. What I'm talking about is a way of leading and um, bringing people around in my department and my organization that creates a culture of transformation, which means that it creates a culture that is poised to change, that is based on principles of trust and value and innovation and creativity, development and growth, autonomy and character integrity, vulnerability, um, authenticity, that in and of itself creates a culture within this organization that should I need to move from here to there, wherever here is, and wherever there is, I have developed a culture that is capable of turning on a dime because these people and me are now living in an environment where turning on a dime is possible. And we've built that. That's what we're talking about when we talk about transformational leadership. It's not about one or the other. So in this, it's not about one state or the other state. So in this world of transformative culture, it really doesn't matter who the board of directors is or who the council is or what direction they want to go. It's not related in that way. It is just about how we're going to be and how capable we are to move in any direction they set when that direction comes at me. And should they change their mind midstream, I have created a culture that is able to turn. So now I don't have to have an organizational and mandate based identity complex because they just flipped my world upside down. So, so you've described JP, a beautiful, um, a beautiful picture of what of what is valuable in this process that you're that you're um that you're tra training that you're teaching that that you know that's your banner and it's really that recognition of the individual again it's back to the individual and i think this is so, what's so beautiful about it and when you were describing those words of trust and value and innovation and you know resilience resonates for me there too and i think this is a very important message for the audience to really gather some sense around the fact that, yeah, there's been some global shifts in how we deliver everything in the world. And, you know, do we look to the board of directors or the counselors for guidance, or do we build that capacity for, you know, if you want to call it resilient behavior, resilient response in a world? I mean, the only constant in our world is change. So right. by creating that capacity for resilience to change, you then, yeah, I, I love that perspective because I can tell you from my career that, you know, there are many um, people within the public sector that I've participated in over the years that feel that if, you know, if these people just did this or if this group just did that or if these leaders just did this. But in the end, that's all outward looking. It's rather what what am what am I capable of responding to and supporting in a way that's going to move us forward, regardless of what the people around me are, are involved in or, or directing us to do. Right. Is that, that's exactly is that... it. If I can create a department 
that is steeped in trust and value and hope and optimism and resilience and self-efficacy and innovation and in transformative leverage, meaning that mm -hmm. they can literally turn on a dime because we have created that kind of flexible, malleable, moving, creative culture, then I think that yeah. that is the ultimate risk mitigation act because no matter what you throw at me in my department, we will now be able to respond. And we will be able to respond without having an identity crisis or a professional problem, without needing to go through incredible degrees of cultural shift and development. We are ready. So it is really the greatest risk mitigation strategy. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that it kind of says is that as the public servant leader, my job is to create an environment that is transformatively capable. I will tell the department who we are and what we uh, and how we function. So that's my job, who we are and how we function. And then the council, it's their job to now tell me what we're going to do. And then I will respond. And and I think that naturally leads into a very healthy, low stress, low anxiety environment because now the roles are clear, um, you know, the support system is clear, and that internal integrity grows as as both the leadership and those around that leadership that that recognizes those aspects of the individuals on the team. Absolutely, and I I really lament because I've watched what happens when this is when what I'm about to say takes place. I lament when the notion of who we are and how we function is not explicitly set by leaders, which quite frankly, in the majority of workplaces, it's not. So what starts to happen then is the board of directors or the council in setting strategic priorities also comes to affect, whether they do it wittingly or not, the very culture of the organization over which they are governing. And so suddenly, from board of director to board of director, from shift on the board to election after election, what starts to happen is the culture of the municipality or the organization or the ministry starts to shift radically, almost like it's blowing in the wind, depending on who happens to be on the board or the council. And that in and of itself is exhausting and it is unfair to the staff that is there because they can't garner transformative leverage when they're always on their heels. And so to to take the responsibility of leadership and say, I understand that the governance piece can tell me what my strategic priorities are and which direction I have to move. That's their job. But who we are and how we're going to function, that's my job. That is the kind of risk mitigation that avoids that kind of identity crisis and puts us in a place where we don't have to feel like we're shifting and you know flying in the wind like a flag. So, you know, I find this very valuable and I hope the audience will as well, because really there has been huge shift in, you know, in management, if you want to call it management of government or private sector, or, sorry, public sector spaces yeah. over the last 20 years. And I mean, trust and those elements of, of relationship have really shifted. So um, with with that idea around, you know, what we've talked about today 
And, you know, assuming the audience is our leaders, whether it's counselors and the boards of, of our organizations, as well as the, you know, the administrative leaders, those, those executives, and our community at large, what would you leave as a call to action for our listeners based on, on your feelings of this conversation? Okay, so that's a very good question. Um, I think what's leaping to mind is a bit of research that was done. There, there, there was a, a meta study that was done where a group of researchers took a whole bunch of primary research that was done in organizations and summarized them and gave the findings of uh, dozens upon dozens of research findings. And here, here's what they're saying. And I'm going to preface this by sort of uh, laying the groundwork of our current environment. Our current environment is, uh, well, you know, the word unprecedented, I don't think I've seen it stated or written so often in my entire life as we have since March 2020. You know, once once COVID hit and the entire world shut down, all the rules that used to exist are now called into question. Like, we don't know. And one of my great concerns is when I hear people talk about going back to normal, uh, almost as if, much as we said earlier, they're walking down the road, peering back at where they've been. And yes. I don't know that we're going to go back to what we've always known. As a matter of fact, I think that the future involves coming up with solutions that we haven't lived yet, something that's innovative, something that's different, something that's creative. There's a new chapter coming down the line where a lot of our unquestioned thoughts of normalcy uh, have to be redefined. And in this new world, what we're seeing is we're seeing the move to digitization, we're seeing um, distance working, we're seeing virtual learning, we're seeing commerce being done differently, we're seeing economic impacts. And I don't just mean the short-term negative economic impacts, we're looking at long-term, what is this future economy? We're trying to figure out how our own supply chain management, our own agricultural sectors, a whole bunch of sectors, how they function in this new world. And one of the things that we're also seeing is a shift in how employers view employees and how employees view employers. And we're also seeing a, a huge swath of the population taking some of the time that's been given to them and really reassessing what they want in their lives, what they want yes. for their future, how they feel fulfilled, how they feel like they are appreciated and where they want to be by the time retirement comes, not just in terms of professional life, but life in general. So it's almost like the pause, if you can even call it a pause, because for some of us, it's just been crazy work. But the difference, the transformative uh, impetus that has hit us is almost causing people to remove that compartmentalization between work and home and just ask the global question, who do I want to be and who do I want to become? Now, this is a very interesting question because the research I was talking about a minute ago came to a conclusion that I think is suddenly really relevant now. And the conclusion they came to is around this whole notion of competitive advantage. And what they said that I agree with wholeheartedly 
is that the future does not involve a segregation of sectors like it used to. Like people used to make their career in the private sector or in the public sector. And although there's been more crossing over, it wasn't much. And the future is really one where that kind of sort of separation is not going to happen anymore. That kind of compartmentalization is probably going to dissolve. And so you have now a swath of incredibly capable people out there looking for a type of work environment and a type of work-life arrangement that is somehow congruent with who they want to become and how they want to be before they retire. Because a lot of them are questioning that the old way of being isn't really healthy for them. And so when you add the whole notion of digitization to this and the information age, what we start to see is that competitive advantage can no longer necessarily be based on trade secrets because those will be found out. And it can't be sort of operational excellence because, I mean, that stuff gets benchmarked. And before we know it, everybody finds out. And so it's hard to keep a secret in this particular market situation. And it's hard to have sort of like, uh, you know, uh, trade, what's the word I'm looking for? Particularities that nobody else will have. The and differentiators, so, yeah. Right. And yeah. so the differentiator, based on this research that was done, can no longer in a post-COVID world really be a product or a particular kind of service that is done. Their conclusion was that competitive advantage in the future world must be around leadership in an organization working together to create a kind of environment that affirms trust, value, development, acceptance, resilience, optimism, hope, self-efficacy, etc., such that the people working there get that degree of growth and evolution that they are looking for in their lives. And secondly, that no competitor can copy without also going through all the same kind of work. Right? That becomes the new competitive advantage. So not only does it give you, um, I suppose, I don't want to say protection, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, bolstering. I think it gives you agency, full agency of your life. Well, it gives you full agency in your life, but organizationally, not only does it give you a degree of bolstering against your competitors, but in this future world, it also gives you the greatest capacity to attract on the base of this kind of competitive advantage, the best professionals that are going to be out there looking for work anyway because post-COVID mo mobility is gonna go through the roof. So suddenly you have competitive advantage both within the sector and for finding the talent that will maintain your positioning. So I guess the call to action is, if you think about competitive advantage this way, then the character of leadership, who we are as people and how we use our various contexts to make ourselves better, really has tangible results in a post-COVID world in terms of our capacity to be healthy, to be productive, to be profitable, and to have the long-term economical and fiscal viability that we're looking for.
That is amazing. And you JP, true to every conversation we've had, you've <laughs> left me <laughs> with some very provocative and creative thoughts. And, and I hope that this inspires many of our leaders, both on the private and public side, to really rethink what the future looks like for them and the organizations that they participate in. Do you have any closing comments that you want to want to provide? And then we can do a little wrap up from there. Um. Sure. You know, I, I've been doing a little bit of blue sky dreaming and I, I sort of watched what we've done as a country since COVID hit all sectors. And I, I don't know about you, but I've been actually quite encouraged. You know, I've, I've watched our political system pull together. I've watched our former polarized movement sort of move towards more unity than polarization. I've watched the Canadian culture really kind of believe that we're in this together. And yes. I've watched the numbers drop. And, you know, are we the best in the world? No, we weren't. But we also were nowhere near the worst in the world. We did a really good job at this. And Canada yes. is known internationally for being a hotbed of uh, development, uh, research, you know, like a brain center, uh, yes. as well as a center of uh, harmony and peace and cooperation and community and extension. So, you know, there's a part of me that looks at what we just talked about in competitive advantage and looks at our Canadian behavior since March and kind of hopes that if we really grab the bull by the horn, so to speak, that we mm -hmm. could offer a gift to the rest of the world, which is we've done it like this. We have greater transformative leverage. We are adapting. We are in a place where we have secured our positions in a swirling world through capacity, not through policy and procedure. And we could offer a gift internationally to say, here's what Canada has done. And maybe we could serve as a little bit of a model out there. And so let me ask you this then, with that kind of vision, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, JP, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, you know what? I have a contact form on my website and um, you can go to transformative directions, uh, directions is plural.com, or you can go to drjpgideon.com and uh, that's D-R-J-P-G-E-D-E-O-N dot com you'll, you'll land at the same website and just contact me through the contact form there and i will respond in short order jp i really want to thank you for this opportunity to have a conversation with you this is an incredibly enlightening uh, journey for me and it's always a pleasure i hope we can have you back at some point in time in the future and with that thank you so much thank you wilmar i look forward to seeing you on the next patio <laughs>